Good afternoon as we continue this recording and this overview of the various beliefs and understandings of what of the Lutheran Church, uh, what we believe, teach, and confess as Lutherans. In the last video, we talked about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And one of the things I did not get to during that video was the subject of communion fellowship. Who do we admit to the table? To the Lord's Supper, um, and this is a good. This is a very important question. It's a very important discussion, and it's one of great confusion. It's one that is not easy, especially with some of your relatives, um, and even maybe tears for yourself. And so the question is, why is it that only certain people are allowed to receive the Lord's Supper in the Lutheran Church? And I should say most confessional Lutheran churches. There are exceptions to this. And I'm going to deal with some of these exceptions later. So what we're going to do is we are going to go through some scripture. We're going to go through a lot of quotes. Um, there's quite a bit of stuff that we're going to go into about the Lord's Supper. Why, um, who is to be admitted and who isn't, um, things of that nature. So the first thing we are going to start with is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16 to 21. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord, the table of the Lord, and the table of demons. Now we should stop for a sec. So first thing I got to make a note. Ultimately, in this passage, um, the Apostle Paul is dealing with Christians versus non-Christians. So we're going to get deal with this very simple thing. Is not obvious barrier is non-Christians should not be admitted to the supper, and you're going to you'll, people will find that most um, Christian church bodies agree to this because he says you should not participate with demons. And this is actually basically him saying you should not be partaking of meals with unbelievers. And unbelievers should not be partaking of this, the Lord's table. All right. But the real thing to focus in on here is the word participation. This is the Greek word koinonia, which, refer, which means here it's translated as participation, which really isn't the best of translations. Um, and it's kind of misleading because you, like I said in the last video, the word participation, you know, it sounds like we're talking about, oh, I participate in basketball. I participate in um, this or that. It sounds like you're just doing something. But koinonia is a word that speaks to fellowship. It speaks to community. And this is actually why many translations will translate it as communion, which is where we get the term Holy Communion. So it's a holy community or common union. And that very phrase, 
common union. The word koinonia, it's a word that denotes marriage. It's a, there's something very, it is very intimate. It's letting you know that the meal that we are partaking of is a unity. It's a celebration of the unity of the body of Christ. This is why it is in the letter of 1 Corinthians that we hear about communion fellowship. Is why in the Lord in this this book of the Bible they talk about the Lord's Supper. Because you see, the church in Corinth was a church that had many, many different issues, many different problems. They were divided, they were fighting about everything they could think of. They're fighting over, you know, who. That I follow Paul, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, which means Peter. I follow Jesus, and they they be trying to one up one another, and so they're fighting about all these things. And so he's looking at the divisions amongst them, and it's within this context that he writes about the Lord's Supper, because the Lord's Supper is a celebration of the unity of the body of Christ. But he is dealing with a church that is completely divided. They're fighting about everything. And this is the antithesis. This is the opposite of what the Lord's Supper is all is doing. One of the things that the Lord's Supper is doing. And this is why he is condemning what's going on. This is why he brings up the Lord's Supper. Because it is a communion with Christ. And by consequence of being a communion with Christ, it is a communion with your brothers and sisters in Christ at the altar. So there's supposed to be a level of unity. All right. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 to 22. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for better, but for worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another go gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you this for this? No, I will not. So again, he, and here he is. He's getting into this issue of divisions. The issue that was going on in the church in Corinth. They're divided. And so he's bringing this up. And... He acknowledges there are divisions, and he says, you know, some of these divisions are necessary, especially divisions of doctrine. So it is necessary to happen. But nonetheless, division is not good. It's to be condemned. And here he's condemning what they're doing to the Lord's Supper. And this is the division here is not division just to doctrine. Here they're divided about what they're going there for. Some people are just going there to have, you know, get some bread and drink some wine, get drunk. And have some food. and But there's others that are actually coming there for what it is. And so there is a division. The purpose of the Lord's Supper, the purpose of this meal, is a division. And so Paul is condemning this. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27 to 32, it says, 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone for anyone who eats and drinks without the dis, without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So here is where this is the probably the central passages regarding what we talk about as the celebration of closed communion. And I'm going to come back to this in a little bit here. But understand that this is telling us that we need to take care in the practice of the Lord's Supper. Because first he says that you must, whoever therefore eats the bread and, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So that in and of itself should give us alarm. That we should take serious care on our own account, but we should also be taking serious care in how our administration of it. This is in the first, this is in the letter to the church in Corinth. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, and I think I quoted this um, when we talked about the office of the keys, it says that pastors are stewards of the mysteries. That they are their job is to take be caretakers of this precious, wondrous gift that God has given us. But it is, but in the rea the reality is, if it is taken in an unworthy manner, it can bring. It is the person who takes it in an unworthy manner, or uh, honestly, if it's distributed in an unworthy manner, both one could make the case. The case could definitely be made that the both the administer administrator of the sacrament and the receptionist the receiver is guilty concerning the body and blood of our lord so this is a you know a very stern warning from paul and he only intensifies this he says let a person examine himself then so um there are some churches that do what is practiced known as infant communion there's they'll commune really really young and I would I would go against this idea. Throughout the history of the church, and we're going to get to this later when we start you start hearing some quotes from the church fathers. But since the earliest days of the church, it has been required that you were instructed in the faith prior to receiving the Lord's Supper. The reason for this is twofold. One is shortly before this, and you actually heard it yesterday. In the previous video, when I talked about the Lord's Supper, is that Jesus says that you're supposed to do this in remembrance of me. Here, Paul is saying that you are supposed to examine yourself. Now, an infant is not going to be able to do it in remembrance of Jesus. They have some ideas to who Jesus is. But it says there you're supposed to do it in remembrance of him, and you're supposed to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So how do you do that if you don't know the scriptures? This is why kids 
are supposed to go to Bible class. This is why you're. This is one of the reasons to be keep going into Bible class and continue to learn God's word even into adulthood, so that when you go up to the Lord's Supper, you could really do it in remembrance of Him, so that you can really proclaim His death until He comes. That you may truly examine yourself. But if you're not in God's word, your ability to remember Him. Your ability to your your remembrance of him, your exam, exam self examination, your um, proclaiming of his death, it's going to be pretty insufficient. You're not going to do it because you have not been in the Word that gives you those tools, right? That enables you to do these things. So, and sadly, many Christians are living in that state, and. The case could be made that there should be some, we'll talk about that a little bit more. There's some more to that, and I'll deal with it a little bit. It says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, this is kind of an interesting question. Is he talking about the body of Jesus, like the body that is present in the bread? So if you remember when we talked about the theology of the Lord's Supper, we said that the bread is the body of Jesus. So both the bread and the body is present. But here's the thing. There are church denominations that believe that the bread represents the body. This would be including the Methodist, the Presbyterian, um, the Baptist, the Reformed. Um, they all believe that it represents the body of Jesus. They don't believe that it is the body of Jesus. They believe it represents. So this is a major source of division. So this is um and so this is something that Paul is warning against. But in on the in the case of the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church believes that the bread they believe it was called transubstantiation. They believe that the substance of the bread transforms into the substance of body, that the wine, the substance of wine transforms into the substance of blood, all right? That's what they believe, teach, and confess. And they believe that Jesus is re-sacrificed at every single mass. It's known as the sacrifice of the mass, all right? And so these are major points of difference. And this leads to the other question about this when he says discerning the body, is he talking about the body that is present in, with, and under the bread? Or is he talking about the body of Christ, the body of believers? Because he does actually talk about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In a few paragraphs, he will start talking that way. But he talked about the body as being the thing in the, the body and the bread. He just talked about this within the same context. So which one is it? And I'd argue that this is a double entendre. It's actually both. You come up, when you come to the altar, you are supposed to recognize that the body is present in the bread. But you're also supposed to recognize the local body of believers. So if you come up to the altar, so let's say I come up to, if I, you know, I were to go to a Methodist church, for example, and they were, they were celebrating communion. If I came to the altar, I believe 
that this is the that the bread is the body of Jesus. I believe that that wine is the blood of Jesus. I believe, teach, and confess that I receive the forgiveness of sins with that supper. But the Methodists don't believe any of those things. They believe it represents the body. They believe it represents the blood. They believe that it does not give forgiveness. It is merely an act of remembrance. You were remembering him dying on the cross. You were remembering that he forgave your sins, but you don't actually receive it. That's what they believe. So if I were to come to the altar believing what I believe, while they believe what they believe, I would be failing to recognize the local body of Christ. And therefore, as Paul says here, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And he's not talking about just spiritual sickness and death. He's talking about physical sickness and death. And so in other words, eating and drinking in an unworthy manner brings spiritual and possibly even physical harm to the receiver. This is why we as Christians, we as Lutherans, are very are are the way we are. Why we only give the Lord's Supper to some people. This is why we practice what is known as closed communion. The term closed communion. Now you're going to hear throughout the Lutheran Church, Missouri City, you'll hear two different terms. You hear say some say close communion, and some will say closed communion. I don't like close communion because I think that's skirting the issue and we're trying to be nice and more um, kind or whatever. But I don't like it because it's, there's no historicity to it. There's no reason for it because there's nobody that celebrates far communion. But there are people that celebrate open communion who commune anybody and everyone. Closed communion is an historical is based on historical practice. The term itself is fairly new in, in the grand scheme of things. But the concept behind it is extreme, is ancient. In the earliest days of the church, and if you go to an Eastern Orthodox church, they still have this within their liturgy. Whenever they got to the celebration, of the right after the sermon, they would have what is known as the dismissal of the catechumen. If you were not a confirmed member of that congregation, or catechized member of that congregation, sorry, if you not been catechized, instructed, prepared for reception of the Lord's Supper, you were dismissed. And this was adults, children, whatever, you were dismissed from the congregation. This was known as the dismissal of the catechumens. Those of you were those who were going through catechesis, so Christian instruction preparing for the reception of the Lord's Supper, they would go to another place and then they would be instructed on the Christian faith. They'd do kind of like our modern-day confirmation. That's when they would do it, preparing them. Then the pastor would chant, or the pastor, priest, bishop, whatever, he would chant and say, The doors, the doors, in wisdom let us attend. And the doors would shut. This is why it was called closed communion, because they literally closed the door. And the reason they did this was because this was during a time of persecution. And so they're very protective 
of the Lord's Supper. They wanted to make sure they knew everyone who was receiving. And to emphasize this, right afterwards, they would say the words of the Nicene Creed and say, I believe, as a way of saying, or some form of creed, as a way of confessing that we are united in faith and we come here in one voice. And there's even a, there's kind of like a prayer right before the Lord's Supper. And again, you could find this, I think, in the Divine Liturgy of St. James that expresses a closed communion at this understanding of communion. So open communion, by the way, in contrast, is open communion teaches that anybody is welcome to the Lord's Supper. But here's the thing is if you follow churches who practice open communion, there's one or two things that you'll find in these churches. Either one, A, they don't believe the Lord's Supper does anything. They don't believe it forgives sins. They don't believe the body and blood is present. And so if they don't think it does anything, they're obviously not going to think it has any harm. So they're going to be probably, it makes sense, they might be more lax in their celebration of the Lord's Supper. The second trend, and so not all, this isn't always the case. So this, and this is why the second reason is usually they have a very low view about of the scriptures. They will say they won't say that the Bible is God's word. They'll say the Bible contains God's word. And if you go back to one of the first videos, you'll hear what I mean by that. So they don't believe all of the Bible is God's word. And so it is very understandable that they would be much more open because they don't take the Bible completely seriously. And so they might not take seriously when Paul says this can be taken to your harm. And so people might even be asking, so who's, who's the pastor to be the person to be denying people the Lord's Supper? Well, the two thing, two verses you go to, first off, is in Romans 16. Um, I'm going to pull this up here. Romans 16, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So here, so right there, there's a call to avoid those who create divisions of doctrine, different teaching. So that's the first one. And then the other one is John chapter 20. And we've heard this a few day, in a few videos ago. But it's relevant again here. Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So right there, Jesus has given the authority to his apostles to, and by consequence to the church to withhold the forgiveness of sins. And that is exactly what the pastor is doing when he withholds the Lord's Supper. Now, I want you to understand something. And this is a confusion that's created by a the King James Version. The King James Version will translate that verse in uh, 1 Corinthians 11. Instead of saying, eats and drinks judgment on himself, they'll say, eats and drinks damnation on himself. Um, that was actually kind of a bad translation on the part of the King James. And so judgment is a little bit ac more accurate and more it's a little bit safer. So when we deny somebody the Lord's Supper, we are not saying that that person is going to hell. We are not saying that they are not a Christian. 
but we are being we are being good stewards of the mysteries of the Lord's Supper. We are doing as Scripture commands us because we don't want to cause physical or spiritual harm on anyone. So many people have perceived this as a an act of hatred, and here I'm going to come back to that. All right, so I'm going to read some quotes here from the Confessions. So in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, we have, um, as you remember in the very beginning, we have certain confessions. And so this is what we have from the Book of Concord, a few quotations. So in Luther's small catechism, and we actually read this in the previous video, it says, who receives this sacrament worthily? Fasting and bodily preparation are certainly fine outward training. But the person is truly worthy and well-prepared who has faith in these words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. But anyone who does not believe these words or doubts them is unworthy and unprepared for the words for you require all hearts to believe. So right there it says that you are to believe that these things are given, the body and blood, the bread and wine, which is the body and blood, is given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Those who do not believe it are not to receive the supper. Another one from this is from the preface of the catechism. It says, because this is a sacrament of the New Testament, as Christ clearly says, communicants therefore ought to be confident that they are being offered what is promised in the New Testament, namely the forgiveness of sins. All right, so there's another little thing here. Here's a here's another quote. I, I can't remember where all these are coming from. I have I'm reading off of a paper I did back at seminary, and I don't because I'm looking on at this via Adobe Acrobat. It doesn't have the um, where my footnotes are related to. But anyways, these are all from the confessions. It says, obstinate sinners should not be admitted to the sacrament or other fellowship in the church until they improve their behavior and avoid sin. So right there we are saying that if you are you are in, um, you are in persistent sin, unrepentant sin, then you are not to be admitted to the Lord's Supper. So let's say you're cheating on your spouse or... And you are not regret. You have no remorse, or you divorced your spouse for an unbiblical reason, and you were showing no repentance. You you broke. You got divorced because you said, "Well, I just don't feel anything for that." That's not a biblical reason. The only biblical reason for divorce is infidelity. They is unfaithfulness, and so you're you you and note. The person who's unrepentant is the one who initiated the divorce, not the recipient of the divorce. They are a victim. They still need to they can still receive the Lord's Supper. But the one who initiated it for a reason that is not given, not permitted in the scriptures, they would be unrepentant until they have shown repentance. That does not mean they have to go get remarried to the person. But they actually have to show, but it, what it requires is true contrition, true and contrition, regret, guilt 
for what they have done and faith in Christ that he will um, forgive them and desire to turn over a new leaf and take and treat marriage more seriously. So if they do that, then they can receive the Lord's Supper. But until that point, yes, the pastor has the authority to withhold it. Those who are impudent and unruly ought to be told to stay away, for they are not ready to receive forgiveness of sins because they do not desire and do not want to be righteous. And again, echoing the same thing. And by the way, I only use divorce as an example. Um, there are any of a number of sins that could fall into that. Um, we believe, teach, and confess that only those who truly believe and are worthy but though also the unworthy unbelievers receive the true body and blood of Christ, though they do not receive life and comfort, but rather judgment and damnation if they do not turn and repent. So right there, this is the warning that if you even though if you come up to so if a Methodist, I'll use a Methodist as an example. Uh, Methodists, as I said, believe do not before the official confession of the Methodist Church is that the bread represents the body, that the blood represents the wine, or the wine represents the blood. And so, and they don't believe you receive the forgiveness of sins. So they were to come up to our altar, where we do believe those things. They are going to still receive the body of Jesus. They are going to still receive the blood of Jesus, but they will not receive forgiveness. They will receive judgment and condemnation. Now, again, I don't know about the translation of the word damnation there. I don't think this is a, arguing for condemning someone to hell. But it is definitely a strong condemnation. You are going to be convicted. And yes, it can bring even physical harm upon you. The catechism contains what every... Again, here's another one. The catechism contains what every Christian should know. Anyone who does not know it should not be numbered among Christians nor admitted to any sacrament. Again, another one, those who do not want to learn these things must be told how they deny Christ and are not Christians and should also not be admitted to the sacrament, should not be sponsors for children at baptism, and should not exercise any aspect of Christian freedom. So this is one of the reasons why it's, so before anyone is able to receive the Lord's Supper, they are required to learn the catechism. They're required to learn the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, um, the Apostles' Creed. They're supposed to learn the basics about baptism, the Lord's Supper, confession and absolution, the things that I'm going through right here. And so until they are able to, they can do that, articulate that, they are not to be admitted to the Supper. And Luther actually advised in his, I think it was in his, either his large or small catechism, the preface, he advised that every single member of every single church should be tested at once a year to see that they still know it. And if they don't, they should not be admitted to the Lord's Supper and they should not be godparents or witnesses or sponsors in baptism. So, and because you have to be, you're commanded to do this in remembrance, um, to examine yourself, to celebrate the Lord's death until He comes. And if you don't, you're not, you don't know your faith. You can't do these things. 
Um, here's a quote from Martin Luther. He says, it terrifies me to hear that in one and the same church, right, one and the same altar, both parties are defined and to receive one and the same sacrament. And one party is to believe that it receives nothing but bread and wine, while the other is to believe that it receives the true body and blood of Christ. And I often wonder whether it is credible that a preacher or shepherd of souls could be so hearted and malicious as to say nothing about this and to let both parties go on in this way, receiving one and the same sacrament, everyone according to his own faith, etc. If such a person exists, he must have heart harder than any stone, steel, or adamant. He must, in fact, be an apostle of wrath. Whoever, therefore, has such preachers or suspects them to be such, let him be warned against them as against the devil incarnate himself. Very, very, very strong words from Luther. That those who believe that you can, that those who are willing to administer the Lord's Supper indiscriminately, when you take into consideration what Paul said about it being harmful to spiritually and physically, this is why Luther says anybody that would do that has got to be of the devil. I mean, think about this. Imagine a doctor who knowingly gave medicine, administered medicine to someone that he knew would bring harm to them because of a condition they had. Would that doctor be considered loving or good? No, you considered him evil, reckless. And yet we consider the pastor who administers indiscriminately as being the most loving of pastors. That's the way it is in modern culture. But in reality, he is doing harm to the individual. And it's, exact, it's actually the opposite of love. It's reckless. It is wicked. It is easier, yes. There's less confrontation. There's less likely people are going to fight and get angry with you. But you are bringing harm, and it's reckless. CFW Walther <clears throat> wrote this. Holy communion is a mark of confession of faith and doctrine among those who celebrate together. Therefore, the admission of members of heterodox fellowships to the celebration of communion within the Lutheran Church is in conflict with, first, Christ's institution, second, the commanded unity of the Church in faith and accordingly in the confession, third, our love for those to whom the sacrament is administered, and four, our love for our own fellow believers, especially the weak who by this action would be given serious offense. And then finally, the command not to become participants in the sin and error of others. C.F.W. Walther, in case you don't know, was the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Francis Pieper, other, another notable Lutheran theologian, he says, open communion leads the neighbor to sin by partaking unworthily of the sacrament. This was a quote I found kind of surprising. This was written by John Calvin. John Calvin is the kind of the Martin Luther to the Reformed and the Presbyterian. And so I find it very interesting that he would write this. He says, And here also we must preserve the order of the Lord's Supper. 
that it may not be profaned by being administered indiscriminately. For it is very true that he to whom its distribution has been committed, if he knowingly and willingly admits an unworthy person whom he could rightfully turn away is as guilty of sacrilege as if he had cast the Lord's body to the dogs. Therefore, lest this most hallowed mystery be disgraced, discretion is very much needed in its distribution. Mark Chemnitz said, Christ did not make a twofold institution of his supper, one for the unworthy and another for the unworthy, so that to Peter the words indeed mean take, eat, this is my body, but to Judas the words are different, namely take, eat, this is only plain bread. But he says in general to all who come to the supper, take, eat, this is my body. And then finally, here's a quote from Justin Martyr, who is one of the, he comes, he's from the second century, one of the early church fathers. He says, and this food is called among us the Eucharist, of which no one is allowed to partake, but the man who believes that the things which we teach are true and who has been washed with the washing that is for the remission of sins and unto regeneration and who is so living as Christ has enjoined. So, and there's other quotes I could pull out of the church fathers and things like that. But as you notice, the ongoing theme, this is throughout the generations, is that there is supposed to be discipline as to who is to be given the Lord's Supper. Even from Calvinists, ironically, even though um, most Reformed and Presbyterians practice open communion, even though John Calvin spoke against it, um, that you're, he says that you are to be discriminate into the Lord's Supper. And he even there's even quotes of him condemning um, condemning Calvinists who would go to an altar, a Lutheran altar. So. And the thing is, ultimately, as I go through all this, I mean, this is a temptation in our society where we everybody thinks we're entitled and we all have a right to everything. And so we think, well, this is very unloving or that's not kind. But there's a story I'm mindful of. There's a, I remember, When I went to the, the very first time I attended a Higher Things Youth Conference was in Atlanta, Georgia. I was on my vicarage. I went there for one day. I wanted to check it out because I heard per people talk about it. Uh, when I was at, at Concordia, Wisconsin, I heard a lot of people say how good, how good of a uh, youth conference this was. And I wanted to see, is this good? Is this, is this something I want to promote to youth? I had never been to it. And I wanted to see if it was good. And so I went up there. It was, it was in hot Atlanta, very hot summer. And I remember sitting in on a presentation and he was talking about this guy, this pastor, I can't remember who he was, he's from Illinois. But he's talking about his daughter who was struggling with a drug addiction. And it was a very awful drug addiction. And he said that he the point where it got the most severe, where his daughter was so deep in unrepented sin. It was Christmas Eve service, and they had they just they have administered communion. His daughter came to the altar, and this pastor, when he got to his daughter, with tears 
in his eyes, knowing that this meal would be to her harm in that moment, passed her and did not allow her to receive the Lord's Supper. Now, I don't think anybody would tell that pastor that he didn't love his daughter. Rather, he did it because he loved his daughter. And the interesting thing is, is from he, this, what he said in the story, was that it was actually the wake-up call for his daughter. When she, re, when she saw her own father deny her communion, she realized she needed to get back on the right track. And she did. And, she, you know, apparently he has a good relationship with her. Now, this is, you know, over 10 years, almost, you know, over 10 years ago I was there and I heard this. But that's the thing is the close communion is about love for the individual. It is about love for Christ. It's about love for the sacrament. But it's also about love for that person. We don't want to bring harm. And furthermore, we do want them to receive the supper. We want them to come to what we believe to be a right understanding regarding the Lord's Supper. Now, some people might be wondering, so like the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, um, they believe what we believe about the Lord's Supper. Why don't we administer that, allow them to the table? Now, understand for normally... I, for me personally, I take it by a case-by-case -case basis. If a member is an ELC, somebody comes to our church who's a member of an ELCA church, um, I will ask them questions um, to, to see whether or not they can come to the altar. And here's the reason why. It's the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America as a denomination does not, as I've said before, does not believe that the Bible is God, entirely God's word. They, there are questions about um, the virgin birth. There are questions about even the resurrection of the body. There are questions about whether or not Jesus died for your sins. There are major, major, there are even, the, they even have teaching that there is salvation outside of Christ. There's many issues within the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. This past summer, this was highlighted at their national convention when um, an a gentleman, a layperson, stood up and said, the Bible says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the ELCA governing church body rejected this, even though it, is, it was quoted from John chapter 14. So there are major divisions between us. And to commune indiscriminately, even with the LCA, would be a failure to recognize the body of Christ because there's divisions over major doctrines. So this is the subject, closed communion. It's an important subject. And like I said, it's a source of difficulty and conflict, um, but it's important, and it's important that we understand why we do it. It ultimately, like I said, it's... Ultimately, it comes down to love. If a pastor is doing it out of vengeance, out of anger, like, I don't like this person, I'm going to show him up by not giving this, he shouldn't be a pastor. 
And but if ultimately it's supposed to come from a place of love. So um, that's it for this video. Uh, the next video is we're going to we are done with the chief parts. So what is there left? Well, in the catechism, there's some prayer. There's some stuff about prayers, and we're going to talk about the table of duties. And then finally, the last video, we're going to talk about what it means to live in the church, to be a member of a Christian church. So until then, God's bless, God's blessings to you, and I pray this is continuing to bless you.